I don't tend to believe in an afterlife, but I also don't know. Um, you know, my instinct is that it's probably more likely that I'm, I'm just gonna, you know, lie on the ground, and I'm cool with that. But, uh, but you know, I don't, I don't find the idea of there not being an afterlife as, as depressing as I think a lot of people have, because I think it does make, you know, we only get one chance at this, and it makes that very special. I suddenly realized what that statement meant, at least what it means for me, is that he freed the world from sin from his perspective. You know, it's up to each one of us to free the world from sin, from our point of view. And with that comes freedom. There was like um, overall understanding that like he was present and like he was real, but there was definitely, there's no pressure to believe in Jesus, which I think is quite nice because there might have been in the past. Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. Uh, my name is Rich, and I'm one of the leaders here at Emmanuel Hove. And if you're uh, watching online, it's great to have you with us as well. And this morning, we're carrying on our Virtual Jesus series. And what the Virtual Jesus series is all about is basically looking at misconceptions about who Jesus is. And that's kind of been what we've been doing throughout our series. Is we've been looking at what perhaps popular cultural understandings might be about who Jesus is and trying to contrast them with what Jesus actually says about himself. And this morning, the one that we're kind of looking at, the misconception, I suppose, is that Jesus's message is irrelevant, okay? And that's important because, let's be honest, we live, we live busy lives where all the time we are trying to make judgments about what's true, what's false, and simply what doesn't matter. Because we haven't got time to deal with absolutely everything and so we know there are certain things we've just got to ignore. And so one of the conceptions, I suppose, is that Jesus' message is just something that we can largely ignore because it's not really relevant um, to us. And this is something that I have to deal with in my day job as well because I'm a maths teacher. There are a few others um, in the room as well. And one of the questions that we get asked quite often is, when am I going to use this in my life, sir? So a lot of laughter, a lot of people who've wondered that themselves. <laughs> now, in maths, it's one of those things where there are some things where it's fairly obvious, percentages, number skills, that kind of stuff. But it's like, well, you can see how that's going to be used. But usually this comes up in lesson one when I start teaching on algebra. And kids will go, when am I going to use this in everyday life? Now, I'm going to let you into a little secret here. I've got three different types of response. And they are kind of mood dependent. <laughs> time-dependent, and uh, so the first one that I would do is when I'm in, I'm in a good mood, I've got loads of time, and so I'll give some sort of genuine heartfelt response, and I'll say, well, okay, I don't know if you'll actually use simultaneous equations in your real life, but actually, it's about you learning skills of logic, and that's important to employees, and so that's why we learn about this, is so that you can do that. That's on a good day. <laughs> There are other times, though, where I'll just say something like, well, when are you going to use this in real life? Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but this is actually real life right now. And you know those GCSEs you're going to do in year 11? Yeah, real, real life. And if you become a parent, your kids are going to do GCSEs. Still real life. And grandparents. And I could, I could go on and on, really, couldn't I? But you get the point. Um, bit of a sarky, naughty one, that. But if I don't do that, option three is the nuclear option. It's the, I'm not going to answer this, but I'm going to throw some other departments under the bus as well. And so I might say, 
well, yeah, okay, maybe you're not going to use this in real life, but when are you going to use Shakespeare when you are uh, in your everyday existence as an adult? And I'm, I, no doubt there'll be some clever people in the room who are going to be able to uh, correct me on that, and you're going to give me clear examples of when we have to use Shakespeare. Do you see me at the end? <laughs> Outside. <laughs> but, yeah, if I'm honest, when I was a teenager... I felt quite similar about this. I thought the message of Jesus was a bit irrelevant. Superficially, I was attending church, I was kind of listening, but deep down in my heart, that's not really what I was interested in. What I was thinking about was, well, how am I going to get that girl to go out with me? I've got guitarists to learn. I've got exams to pass. Why do I care about what Jesus said 2,000 years ago? What's that got to do with me? And you might feel similar this morning. You might think, well... I've got a busy life, Rich. I've got bills to pay. I've got people to see, places to go, a job to work. What has the, the words of Jesus got to do with that? And it's an interesting question, isn't it? But I want to start here this morning saying that I was wrong. I was completely wrong. Actually, the words of Jesus make a tremendous impact to all of those things that I've just talked about and more. And this morning, they could literally transform your life. And that's true whether you're not a Christian yet this morning, or if you are a Christian, the words of Jesus can bring life and transformation to you. And so having said that, let's listen to this morning's passage from John chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Well, I wonder what kinds of big questions you face in your life. I'm talking about questions of real significance, not just what's the spiciest curry that you can handle. Although, if I'm honest, that, that is actually quite an important question to me. There are, there are friendships in this room that have been lost over such a question, okay? It's an important one. Um, if, you, if you eat curry, or as the Indians call it, dessert, that's a korma, then actually um, I expect better of you. But there are more important things in life than simply what kind of uh, curry we can handle, of course. One that I find really challenging is, I don't know if you've been in that job interview situation, and they ask that dreaded question, what is your biggest weakness? Now, I always feel this is a bit of a con, because I'm not going to sit there and give you on a plate that I'm lazy, that, you know, and various other things that are genuine weaknesses. No, we, we've got to give a kind of a spin on some sort of characteristic. It's kind of a, a trick, isn't it? You've got to say something like, well, my absolute biggest weakness is that I just, I work too hard. 
Or I, I, I'm, my work is, I'm too much of a perfectionist in the lessons that I put together. It's just it's all too much. Or, yeah, I mean, the biggest thing that I really suffer with is that I care too much about the staff that I line manage. It's just a really big weakness in my character. No, I mean, it's, it's a question that we have to face that's difficult, but it's, it's one that's not really very sincere. The last example from my own life that I wanted to touch on was, I remember... One of the most difficult questions that I was asked um, was uh, after Jack and I had started going out and it comes to the point where it was time to meet the parents. And that was tricky because they didn't live in this country at the time and so we had to go um, to Spain where we had a really nice chilled week. Jack's parents are very laid back, very easy to spend time with. Uh, and then at the end of the week came the bombshell. And uh, so I'm sat on the steps, I'm putting my shoes on, I've packed my suitcase, I'm ready to get back on my flight back to Gatwick. And then suddenly the question was from uh, Jack's dad, Steve, so what's your five-year plan? And I've no idea what I said in that moment, but I got away with it because 15 years on, here we are. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, these are all key questions, but I want to be honest with you. There is an even more pressing question than anything else this morning. I'm sure you've all got questions that you know you've been asked that are tough. This is the biggest one, though. Do you agree with Jesus? You see, in that passage that we heard this morning, he makes a massive, audacious claim. He says, I am the truth. And whether you're a Christian this morning or not, We've got to keep on evaluating. Do we believe that? And if we do, do our lives line up with that truth? And it's important to note, in the context of that passage, what is Jesus getting at when he's saying, I'm the truth? He's saying that he's the only way to God the Father. He's the only way we can have a relationship with him. And so this is big, isn't it? Because let me just spell this out. We don't often say this, but he is literally saying Eternity rests on how you'll answer this question. You want to spend eternity with Jesus, with God. It doesn't come down to how good a life you've lived here. It comes down to whether you will receive him as your Lord and Savior, as the truth. Now, if we're honest, we don't like that in this culture. In our kind of Western relativistic culture, we don't like statements that are that black and white. We prefer things that are gray. We prefer things that have nuance to them. And so before we get into even considering Jesus' statement, I am the truth, we need to do, deal with a few kind of intellectual roadblocks that might be stopping you from even progressing any further down this path. Because you might just think, well, that's just ridiculous. It's so narrow-minded. It can't be true. So let's deal with a few of these head-on. Now, many of you in here know that I am a child of the 90s. I love the 90s. Man United used to be successful then. And also, music was fantastic in that decade as well. I love the whole Britpop movement. And it's interesting that even today, when I talk to kids at school, they've all got opinions on Oasis v. Blur, Oasis v. Blur and other bands of that nature. But there was one other band called the Manic Street Preachers, and they released one of the biggest albums of that decade, which was called This Is My Truth... Tell me yours, okay? And the reason I mention that is because that is a good summary of what many people in our culture believe about truth claims. I wonder if 
you've ever thought this or you've ever had someone say this to you, it's nice for you that you found Jesus, but it's not for me. Or maybe in a more academic sense, we might have heard a statement like, all truth is subjective. Now, we need to just do a little bit of philosophy here for a moment and just think about this, because those statements don't meet their own tests. Okay? If you say all truth is subjective, everything, that includes that statement. So actually, to say all truth is subjective doesn't work because it doesn't pass its own test. And so it's self-defeating. It sounds nice, doesn't it? It sounds very tolerant and modest, but actually, intellectually, it doesn't actually hold any water. What about another one that we often hear in our culture? All religions are equally true and valid. Now, if I'm talking to somebody who, who says that, again, it, it sounds really nice, and it, it sounds like, oh, I don't want to disagree with that. It sounds so, so plausible, so reasonable. But the question I want to ask is, how do you know? How do you know that all religions are equally true and valid? Think about it. The only way you could know that is if you are the person who sat on top of the mountain of the paths going up to heaven, if you like, and seeing, oh, look, they all work. You're in the position of superiority. So again, this idea that all religions are equally true and valid, it doesn't work on that level. But also, my background is, my dad converted to Christianity out of a Jewish background, and so quite a number of my family are still Jews, and they would say that Jesus is not the Messiah. He's not the one that we're waiting for. They're still waiting for who the Messiah is going to be. And so it's true, in every major world religion, there's a different perspective on Jesus. They can't all be right. So in a way, I'd much rather that you said to me, I think Christianity is wrong, than sort of saying, well, I just think they're all kind of true. Because again, it, it, it doesn't work. Now, there's another viewpoint. The last one I want to cover on this is, is I suppose, what we might call strong agnosticism. And this is the position that basically it is impossible to know if God is real. And again, I want to respond in the same way to that person who's with quite a degree of certainty in that statement, saying it is impossible for you to know that God is real. Well, again, how do you know that? The only way you could know it's impossible is if you're in, again, that position of superiority. So I start off just with all of these points just to say, actually, we need to give Jesus's I am the truth, a fair hearing. It's not that exclusive truth is wrong. It's which exclusive truth is actually correct. That's what we need to spend our time on. And Jesus, I believe, is the source of all truth. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Now, in other words, what he's saying here is that it's not just that Jesus is historically true and he historically died and rose again. It's actually that it makes sense of the world that we live in. You see, every single one of us in this city today, we've got to look out on the world and we've got to look at all the beauty and all the brokenness and we've got to have a set of worldviews that help us to make sense of that. 
Okay, that's what, that's what we need. And so I suppose what I'm trying to challenge this morning is this idea that in this world today, there are people of faith and people of reason. I think we're all believers. Every single person who lives on this earth is a believer in some truths. And what I want to show us this morning is that I think there are some ideas that we would all hold to in this room which require a foundation. We can't just have viewpoints in midair. What is it that's backing them up? What is it that's the thing that we're able to stand on and say, yes, these things are true because of this? So let's dig in and have a look at a few of these. So I think I've picked seven things um, that I think would be uncontroversial for people in our society today, Christian or non-Christian, um, that we believe in. So first of all, equality. Everyone is of equal value. We're all deserving of human rights. We should all be treated fairly. Secondly, compassion. That we should look after the weak in our society, the poor, the disabled. Thirdly, consent. That rich and powerful people cannot impose their sexual desires on others without their say-so. Enlightenment, that change should come through persuasion and education, not through coercion and force. Fifthly, science, that there is an ordered world for us to explore with our minds. Freedom, that slavery should not exist, that every person should be free. And finally, progress. That the arc of history is moving towards a point where there will be greater and greater senses of justice. And that's why we say things like, I can't believe in this day and age I'm having to say whatever it may be, because we believe in this sense of progress towards justice. So the question I'm asking here is, have you ever wondered why do I believe in equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, and progress? You might say, well, it's obvious. It's just obvious that those things should be believed. But let me say this to you, that even in parts of the world today, that is not obvious. Not all of those things are adhered to. And in the West as well. Historically, those things have not always been agreed upon as a given, which begs the question, why do we believe in those seven things? Now, at this point, I mentioned this book a few weeks ago as well. Famous non-Christian historian called Tom Holland wrote a book called Dominion. And in that book, he argues that these values and more come on a foundation of Christianity at their core. And he says in Rome, it just simply wasn't the case that these things were, were held to. And I haven't got, haven't got time to touch on all of those seven. I'm just going to pick one, which is equality. Okay? And if you'd said to Plato and Aristotle that everybody was equal, they would have laughed in your face. Why? Because when you think about it, just on a viewpoint of what we're able to produce, we're not, we're not equal. We're not. In this room, there are some people who are considerably better looking than me. There are some people who are more intelligent. There are people who are stronger. I don't think you can believe that, but you get the point. We're all different. We're not equal. 
We're just not on a secular basis. So why do we believe it? The reason we believe as Christians, but in our society, is because we're living off the foundation of Christianity. Everyone's made in the image of God. That's why they have dignity. It's not because of what they produce. Even if they don't do a day's work ever, they're valued because they're made in the image of God. And so that is one example of how we need Jesus to be the foundation of our truth. There are some of you in here this morning, you agree, you're not Christian, but you believe all of those things I've said. And I want to say to you, let me give you a foundation this morning for those truths that you believe. So Jesus is the foundation of all truth. He also makes some unique claims as well compared to other world religions. Throughout this series, we've noted that whereas in other world religions, people point to a path or some sort of process of enlightenment, Jesus doesn't do that. He points to himself. He says, I'm the truth. Come to me. And what I like about this is that that is a claim that's actually falsifiable. We can put it to the test. It's not vague. We can actually look at, is there good evidence for these things being true? And famously, there is something called the uh, trilemma about Jesus, which is basically, we're left, when we consider what he has to say, we've got three options, really. He was a liar. He was crazy. He was kind of a, a lunatic of some sort. Or he's the Lord. Which one are you going to take home today? And I want us to take this seriously. We're only going to have time just to touch on this today. But if, you are, if this has piqued your interest, I'd encourage you to look at an Alpha course where this has gone into in more detail. Let me give you five quick reasons why I believe we should take Jesus' claim to be the truth seriously. First of all, there are hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus. And we're not talking here about just vague stuff that you can kind of make up and go, oh yeah, I suppose it's kind of like that. We're talking about where he'd be born, where he would die, how he would die, even right down to the exact number of coins he would um, be betrayed over. That is not stuff you can manipulate yourself. Secondly, miracles. There are people who've given eyewitness testimony that they have seen Jesus doing miracles. In the Bible, we've got the feeding of the 5,000. You've got the blind man. You've got people being raised from the dead and many, many others. Now, you might think, oh, come on. That was back then. They were foolish. But you've got to remember, the fact that these things are recorded is because they didn't believe miracles happened easily. And also, you've got to remember, the people who wrote these things down died for this. They weren't just making stuff up that they thought, oh, well, this would be a bit of fun, wouldn't it? Let's just embellish it a little bit. No, these are things that people were martyred over. So it deserves careful scrutiny. Thirdly, we've already looked at his teaching. We've looked how, isn't it remarkable that a man 2,000 years ago came up with a moral framework which has basically not been improved on ever since then? Is that the work of a crazy man? Is that the work of a a morally de deceptive man? To me, that seems like the works I would expect of God. Fourthly, his character. Now, we all have friends who know us, and if you ask my friends, 
what my areas of weakness are and the things that I mess up in, they'd be able to tell you. <laughs> if you spoke to my enemies, I mean, I'm not consciously aware of who that would be. <laughs> You'd be pleased to know. But they would definitely be able to tell you, yeah, Rich didn't do this very well. Isn't it staggering that Jesus, not only his friends, but also his enemies, could not come up with anything that was wrong with this guy? Even though when they wanted him dead... They couldn't come up with anything when it came to it. But even more amazing than that to me is, I wonder, let me ask you a question. What are you like when you're really under stress? When you're really under pressure? For me, it's not good. I'm short with people. I blow a fuse. I get overwhelmed. Isn't it incredible when you think about Jesus, how different he is? We see him on the cross in his darkest moment, rejected by everybody, spat upon, viciously assaulted. What does he do? He looks out onto the crowds and he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Those are the words I'd expect of a God of love. Not an ordinary man. I hope you consider the same. And finally, there's his resurrection. Now, I'd love, I could, I could spend plenty of time on this. I'm just going to say one thing. The resurrection of Jesus is incredibly well attested historically. Again, look into it. And isn't it extraordinary that when we look at history, what happens when someone dies who makes extraordinary claims? Well, sure, they might get talked about for a bit, they might make a few headlines, but we forget about them. We say, they're gone, let's move on to the next thing. But there is a resurrection-shaped hole in human history. Jesus was killed, he was resurrected. How do we know? Well, there's various different reasons which I haven't got time to go into today, but... His movement didn't die. It went from a few scared men and women to billions of people today. Why? It's because of the resurrection. And so that, for me, is clear evidence for Jesus being who he said he was. And I believe this morning, some of you may even be ready this morning to say, yeah, I haven't looked into everything, but I know enough. I know enough to know Jesus is who he said he is. He is the truth. He is the Lord of the universe. He is my saviour, the one who's died for me. And you can come to him even this morning and say, Jesus, I need you in my life. I need to be forgiven for my sin. But we need to know that Jesus has not invited us this morning to a philosophy degree. Okay? He's invited us into a relationship with God the Father by the Holy Spirit. You see, the incarnation which we talk about at Christmas is all about how God hasn't left us in a classroom to figure out stuff for ourselves. He's come down to us. He's come down to our level to reveal himself to us. He's entered our world. And Jesus this morning offers us, and again, I'm talking here to Christians and those of you who aren't yet, he offers us a relationship every day. It's not just a Sunday thing. We've got an offer to have a relationship with the creator of the universe who loves us, who knows us, who knows everything about you. What are we going to do? 
How do we live that out? I'd, look at, I'd like to look at several different ways we can respond to that. Firstly, John chapter 8. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, we love that last bit, don't we? You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. There are universities around the world that have that as a motto on their buildings. It's good, isn't it? Let's not miss the bit before that, though. It says, abide in my word. What does that mean? It means that actually we are to read scripture, we're to read the Bible. If we want to know Jesus, the best way to do that, and what I do every morning as much as I can, is I'll get up and I will feed myself on what the Bible has to say. It's important to have breakfast, isn't it? I I never understand how some people manage to do without that. If I did not have breakfast, I would be the grumpiest person in the world. Talk to my wife, talk to my kids, they'll tell you. But we don't just need to be fed in terms of with you know, cornflakes or whatever your cereal of choice is, okay? We need to be spiritually fed as well. And the reason we've got to do that is because if we don't feed ourselves on that, we're going to feed ourselves on some other truths with a small t instead, okay? And they're not even bad things, okay? They can be, they can be positive things as you'll You'll see in a moment. But it's so important that we don't start our day just thinking on social media. What do our work emails have to say? Even, you know, what our children, what our spouse has to say. No, we need to start by focusing on hearing God speak to us. He's the one that we want to line up our days on the basis of. Not because we have to, but because it does us good. Breakfast does you good. God wants to do you good by getting into his word. 1 Peter chapter 5 gives us a rather startling assessment of the world that we live in. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We don't live in a neutral world. You might think, well, you don't believe in that devil stuff, do you, Rich? Come on. Well, we live in a world full of good. We live in a world full of evil. It makes sense. I don't believe it. It's not the cartoon devil who supports Man United. This is a, a, a genuine power that, that is at work in our world. It stands to reason. What's the antidote to this kind of slightly scary verse? Well, Ephesians 6 says this. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Some of you right now in your life are facing real trials real difficulty and you can't walk forward you can stand firm you can stand firm on the words of Jesus and that's so important because as I said if we don't do that we'll try to stand on other things that that they're decent things but they're not designed to be ultimate truths for us to live by things like financial security career progression romance being popular And it might be in here, you think, well, I'm not that interested in being popular, but you do care what people think about you. And again, it's not a bad thing to be considerate of that, but we mustn't make that top priority, because otherwise what we'll do is we will slowly scale back on the things that God wants us to do in our lives. God wants your life as a Christian to be an adventure, 
But we can slowly erode that away by just saying, well, I'm just, I'll just compromise on that. That slightly difficult truth that our culture doesn't agree with. I'm just going to, no, I'm just going to, you know, I won't hold to that. I'm just going to push that aside. And all we're left with in the end is just the kind of religion of ourselves. Actually, the gospel is powerful. Jesus' truth can change your life, but only when we deal with the raw type of it. It mustn't be constrained. We need to know the truth, not your truth. Okay, now, another favorite band of mine growing up was a band called Audio Slave, and they did a song called Be Yourself. And the chorus goes, Be yourself, it's all that you can do. And we live in a culture that still very much holds to this. And so, if you want to be happy, if you want to be fulfilled, if you want to find meaning and purpose, find out who you are and follow your path, follow your truth. That's very different to what Jesus says here. Jesus says, know the truth and the truth will set you free. If you want to know real freedom, then you need to come to God first. Know him and then you will actually know yourself properly. Okay, otherwise, we're just making it up as we go along, and there's no real foundation in that. Another way of putting this, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's nuts. If you don't think that's nuts, you haven't listened to it. Lose your life to find it, Give up pursuing life as you know it. Pursue Jesus. And when you pursue Jesus, when you know him, when you enter into a relationship with the God who loves you, who knows you, then your true purpose will be found. There is no other way. That is the truth to pursue. And finally, we need to know that he is, Jesus isn't just full of truth, he's also full of grace as well. And it's important that as we come to close, we know that Jesus gives us the opportunity to know him, to have a relationship with him as a free gift. And that's true for you this morning. If you're a Christian, you need to know there'll be times where you have messed up this week and you need to know again that God's faithfulness, as we heard at the beginning of the meeting, is still towards you. It's new every morning. It's available to you today. You can receive fresh grace even after what you did this week. You can know him again. You can have a fresh start. And I want to say that this morning you might be struggling. You might, for some of you in here, I've got the sense of preparing this, some of you, and you feel like you are clinging on with your fingertips to faith. And right now you're allowing that to disqualify you and think, I can't come to God. Like, I'm so close to falling away here. But it isn't about that. It's not about your faith. Jesus said, faith as small as a mustard seed. That's tiny, is all you need. You could be full of doubt this morning. It doesn't matter because it's not about your faith. It's about the faith. It's about the person that you are clinging on to in faith. And that is Jesus who's perfect. He is the truth. Ephesians 2 says, It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift 
of God this morning. And as we finish, as we come into worship, let's draw near to that God. For some of you, you're ready. You can make that step towards Jesus for the first time. You can know him. For those of you who are Christians, we get the grace of God again to start afresh. Amen.